thanks so much for making the time to Glad join to be us. Here, it's man. Very be, cool. It's going to be great. Thank so you. So with that, let's turn it to you and uh -oh. say, Todd, where were you born? And give us some context on what it was like growing up where you were born. Uh, I was born in Kingsville, Texas. So go out the south end of Texas and come up like 60 miles, like the south end of Texas, wow. Kingsville, way down there. So the King Ranch in Texas, that's, that's what we're talking about. Because my dad... My parents grew up in the Midwest, and my dad's first job, his job for his whole career, almost 40 years, was, was with Exxon. And for some reason, they sent him to Kingsville, Texas. I have no idea why. Um, I was born there, and they were there for like two or three years before we moved up to Houston, which is kind of the center of operations for Exxon. So whenever we lived in the U.S., we lived in Texas. But my dad's focus was uh, undersea oil exploration. Seems in Texas. Like, yeah, exactly. Weird. So the main <laughs> place that that happens, what, it, literally his, his specialty was you take an oil rig, but you put it in a terrible sea, mm. typically the North Sea. So you chop the legs off, you sink it, and you make it on the bottom of the ocean floor, and you send hoses up to the tankers. And so the hoses can float. It's essentially what we're talking about. So he, that was his specialty. He did it for 40 years. So whenever we lived out of Houston, we lived in somewhere near the North Sea. So we lived in England for six and a half years, and we lived in Norway for one. Wow. And so I grew up, I mean, when I think about as a kid, from when I was three and a half to when I was 10, it was all England. So my wife and I, still to this day, we've been married a long time. Still to this day, she'll say something about, you know, when we were like eight and this, and I'm like, no idea, just glazed over. Don't even remember that pop culture thing because I was in England and the culture was totally different at that point. It's caught up now, the internet has made it kind of global, but at that point, uh, pop culture-wise, England was five or six years behind the US. Mm. So she has all these growing up memories under the age of 10 U.S. pop culture, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're no, talking no about. Clue. But I have very warm memories of living there, which was really, really cool. It was a great place to grow up at the time. And then we came back to, the, to uh, Houston, and then the best time in life when you're 13 and trying to get your social life together, we moved to Norway, <laughs> which I was aware enough as a 13, 14-year-old to know that the experience was cool while I hated it because mm. I didn't want to be there. Like All my friends were back in Texas, and so my dad would have stayed there but the family had a vote and he was wildly outvoted to go back to Texas. So we went back to Houston and then as soon as I graduated high school, I got out of Houston as soon as I could and went all the way to Baylor. I was there during the Branch Davidian conflict. That was interesting. So I was there for that, uh, went to Baylor and, uh, and did TV and film and then uh, promptly got out of Texas and went to California and never looked do, back. So yeah. Do, do you guys notice how when I leave the uh, question open-ended, our guest just goes through their life in about three minutes. I'm like, it's no big deal. I just went there and I did this thing in movies and film, and now we're here. Life's good. <laughs> I mean, LA was its own 14-year adventure, you know. We're, we're, we're going to yeah. dissect all of that. But great. Did you did you learn any Norwegian living there for a year at 13? Just a little. Yeah, very little. Very little. I was I was, you know, okay to operate in your typical restaurant or that kind of thing as a 13, 14-year-old, mm. but that was about all I could do, you know. And then I moved back, and there wasn't any use for it. So, you know. So the, the description of South Texas that you just gave makes me, you know, engenders this vision of sort of dusty. Heck yeah. Is that, that really yeah. is true? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. A dusty desert, small mm -hmm. town. Totally. I mean, Kingsville is, I hate to say it, but Kingsville is kind of a hole. I mean, it's a nasty, <laughs> nasty place, you know. I mean, the, the, exactly. They're, they're going to love it. They're going to use it like crazy. It's King Ranch and then the town's a hole. It's great. Wow. So, but I mean, King Ranch is still a monster. I mean, you see, you see the Ford F-150s with the King Ranch edition. That's what we're talking about. You know, they're one of the biggest ranches in the world. You know, and they have a preserve and a bunch of other stuff. So that's what they're known for. But for some reason down there, they had a presence of Exxon. I have no idea why. Did you, you were born in Texas. Yes. Did it feel like you were foreign in Kingsville as a 
kid growing up in elementary I was, school, or did you feel? No, I mean, I have I have zero memories of being in Kingsville. I think I was there, you know, a year, year and a half, and oh, I moved okay. to, they moved to Houston, and then we were out of there when I was three and a half. So I have vague memories of Houston before we left for England, and then it's all England. You know, pretty much everything under ten is is England. Uh, my mom does not speak kindly of their time in Kingsville. She was not a fan. Mm. Um, but I mean, it was first job out of college for my dad. They were just getting started, so you know that's where they went. You know, they have friends still to this day that they met in Kingsville. I mean, that's kind of cool. But um, I have no memory of being down there at all. But I remember, you know, Texas at large from growing up and going through high school and all that for sure. But yeah. So then you're in England. Did you feel like a Texan in England? Or did you integrate quickly? My mother tells the story of me being a preschooler and talking about squells and gulls. She was like, squirrels and girls, what is wrong with you? You know. <laughs> so I, I picked up the, the uh, demeanor. I mean, I was in preschool. I was a little you kid. Were, you know. I had, so what happened is when I came back to the States and was mas massively culturally inept because I was so far behind, one of the only ways I made friends when I was a fifth grader was I could drop into, and I can't do it anymore, drop into the world's most perfect British accent oh, and great. go all day. And you have no idea, and then I could snap out of it and be an American. So I, I made friends that way and it was weird, but, um, but I was so integrated because it was just, it was school. But I went to an uh, American school in England, so I had a weird mash of cultures because mm. we lived in a very you know, quintessential English neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, and a lot, I had a lot of English friends but then I went to an American school with DOD kids and kids from all over the world and that kind of thing. So it was an interesting mix. So I know the adult Todd, and I've known you for some time now, but I don't yes, know the high school Todd. Would the high school Todd have surprised me? I was a geek. <laughs> I was a terrible geek. I don't know. I mean, um, I was always fairly nonconformist, but not in a rebellious way. Mm. So I was, you know, a, a, I was never really very popular, but I was kind of okay with it. Um, but I was really trying to find my way. I mean, I was at a private school in Houston, and the vast majority of people were going on to be the standard, you know, doctors, lawyers, stuff that made a lot of money like their parents did, you know. And I wanted to tell stories. So it was already, already this kind of oddball Even in demeanor. high school, you Absolutely. realized that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I started, I started writing in junior high wow. pretty consistently, yeah. Yeah, some sort of fiction, yeah. When, when, when you decided to go to college, what was your major? Uh, TV and film. But at that point, because I was a high schooler, I still really wanted to be a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. So I went into ROTC. I went into ROTC, you know, because I was going to be a fighter pilot. This was the early 90s. And uh, I heard very quickly that two things were wrong. One, uh, if you wanted to be a pilot, I had the wrong major as a TV and film major. They were like, shouldn't you be, you know, computer science or something mm -hmm. that we feel like is better for the military? I hated everything about the military but the idea of being a fighter pilot, which was problematic. And, um, and then they also were doing cutbacks and I knew, uh, I had a friend in the Air Force Academy in the flight track. And those guys get a seat instantly and he was being told it was a three year wait. And I was like, okay, I'm out of this. So I was in that for a year and then stepped out of it. And since I was TV and film from day one, I just stayed in that. But Baylor at the time didn't have much of a film program, so I kind of pulled a lot of my professors aside after the fact and was like, I need you to understand this is what I want to do. So I'm not just here to get a degree, I'm here to like, do this for a living. So I did a lot of little extra stuff on the side, film related, and made a lot of short films and did a lot of things at the time that they weren't really doing in class, but they had a lot of cabinets of gear. I was like, I could use that camera. So I did a lot of that stuff uh, to try kind of build a degree, yeah. Did, did you think about it as storytelling, Todd, in high school? Were you 
so sophisticated that you saw it that abstractly, or did you think of it as, I want to be a writer, or I want to apparently be in film and documentaries? Or? Um, I mean, when I first, when I was first writing as a junior hire, I mean, come on, like a sixth grader, um, I just like telling stories. You know, I liked watching movies, telling stories. I didn't connected the fact that you could be a storyteller in film. That hadn't really landed yet. Mm. But um, I would, I mean, my dad tells the story because we got our first, you know, your first family computer, right? We got the first family computer, and I taught myself to type because my handwriting was bad and I was slow. So I taught myself to type so I could actually crank out stories. My dad was like, what is going on? I can't get him to do math, but that happened, you know? So, um, so I was constantly doing that. And then I went into college and realized I could fuse the two mm. because I tell stories from a very visual place. I, I see them, I know it's cliche, but I see them as movies in my head and I, if I see a scene in my head I can take it and I can spin it. So that's just how I write. So to connect that up on the back end of, oh well that's film, that's exactly what film is, you know, uh, is taking that written medium and, and projecting it that way. So um, I went into film kind of as an offshoot. And what's weird is, as I went through Hollywood, then I kind of came back to, no, I really just like to write. You know, I, I don't need all the Hollywood stuff. I'd really just enjoy the writing process, you know, and, and sharing the written word. So, so that version of you wouldn't have envisioned you being in front of the camera? Absolutely not. Mm. No, 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 no. I had zero interest. Really? That's one of the grand ironies of what I do, yes. Because I'm assuming your personality, Bodhi's personality, was, was present back then, that energy that you got. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've always been fairly big and uh, fairly driven, and that's, you know, visual, and people are aware of that. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I married an actress, and I was staunchly against being in front of the camera. I had just zero interest. And, uh, and so writer, director, and, and thinking about it visually and understanding the post and all that kind of stuff. But, where you're headed, is how on earth do I do a car show for a living where this face is on camera? How did that happen? And it's because it's totally 100% selfish when I decided I wanted to make a car show. I didn't want to not be driving the car. Mm. I had directed a few things, including a Western thing that I did, and I kept thinking the entire day I was directing a Western, the actor's having more fun than me. He's playing cowboy, and I'm not. I'm watching him play cowboy. I'm telling him aim that way, and that's kind of fun, and I like the shot, but he gets to play cowboy all day. It's kind of a bummer, you know? So when we got around to, I'm gonna do a car show, I was like, but I wanna do a car show because I love cars. I don't wanna sit in the edit room and watch that guy drive, that's a bummer. <laughs> so I guess I gotta get in the front of the camera. I gotta talk about the car to the camera, and that means now I get to look at my face in editorial, and I don't wanna do that, but that's the only way I get to drive the car. Gosh, it's tough, isn't it, to listen to your voice and, and see yourself? It's, it's weird. It's, you know the thing that people say, and everybody says this, you hear your voice recorded back and you go, I really sound like that? Yeah. I am so far past that. <laughs> I have heard myself so many times, it's irrelevant to me. <laughs> and it's also funny because I get a, I do the editorial thing, I do the total editor thing, where when I sit as an editor, I am very harsh on myself and I have zero awareness that it's even me anymore. It's just the long-haired guy in the red shirt is doing that and now Paul's saying this and wow. whatever, you know, because I got to get past it, you know. So at some point, you, you pursue your dream and say, I have to go to California, I have to go to LA. What point is that and how did you get to that conclusion? Um, well, I mean, I'm at, I'm at Baylor, and I'm doing a film degree, and I really want to be out of Texas, and I'm intrigued by, I would say, the perception of what Hollywood is. Not the reality, but the perception of what Hollywood is. And uh, believed that I had the, the talent and the storytelling ability to be a director, which no one thinks. So, you know, I moved out there. And my running joke with Hollywood is, if you want to direct, there's a line, 
it's a long line, and people can cut. So you get out there, and it, you start to realize that it's a total free-for-all, and um, you know, the chances of you being a writer-director for a living are incredibly slim, and there's mm. circles of it. I mean, the people that you've heard of, the Christopher Nolans or, or whatever, you know, the people that you've, Jim Cameron, whoever you want to think of, Spielberg, that's a big, big name. That is so much the inner circle of the bullseye, and even one layer out from that, uh, those people you've kind of heard of are fighting to do a project. It's so hard to get work at that level. Um, but I worked for a film studio for a while, it, back into post-production, you know, learning stuff that I use daily that I didn't even want to learn and I didn't learn in college, but now I use it all the time to deliver a TV show. Um, I was writing on the side, directing on the side, and I really realized how much infrastructure there was, red tape, if you, were, if you will, in the way. And it kind of killed the joy of it, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the scale of it and the, and the um, just so much infrastructure that is involved. And I really wanted to do, as weird as it sounds, I wanted to do kind of what I do now. I wanted to be on set with a few people that I really get along with and we get stuff done. And now I shoot a TV show with three, maybe four of us, you know, and two of us are driving cars, you know. So we, we've, we've come full circle back to the thing I always liked about film, which was just kind of the ragtag, we just got that done, can you believe we pulled that off kind of feeling. If you're Star Wars and there's 250 people on set, that's the other end of the spectrum. You made Star Wars and that's cool. I'm glad I wasn't there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I got to learn studio from the ground up because I was working at a studio. And over time, I started to realize the things that I was good at, the politics of Hollywood was not one of them, and the other ways I wanted to operate. Now, you did cut your teeth on some pretty amazing stuff, so I'd love for you to share uh, some, of the, some of the movies you worked on. I worked at New Line Cinema. I, I had just gotten married in late 90s, and I desperately needed a real job. I'd been freelancing and doing all kinds of stuff. And through a temp gig I had, I wound up as a temp receptionist. Perfect job for me for a guy that was an executive at New Line Cinema. Now, New Line has now been folded into Warner Brothers, but at the time was standalone. And uh, they were just starting to be a player in their own right. So I came on in 98, right around the time they were doing a movie called Pleasantville with Tobey Maguire. That was like the first movie I worked on. And I was there for almost a decade. And I worked the back end of post-production. Our joke was, we were the step before, welcome to AMC, may I take your ticket? We were right before that. <laughs> because we were the post-production fix-it guys. So if something went wrong in post, we had to understand everything from, and it was film. We ran film through the camera today and the theater. We had to understand all of that. And I had to learn all that as I went. Had a, had a great boss in that regard. Um, and then, so we had to, if a production would call us, be like, this happened, be like, oh, well, here are your options. This is how you solve that. But we were always involved from the lock of picture, picture edit lock to release, all of the QC, all of the color deliverables, all of that. Which is why when we first got on TV with our show and they said, I'm gonna send you deliverables packet, I went, bring it, I, I get it, you know, I, I have seen that. Which most people that are independent don't get that. Um, so I worked on 200, 250 films in 10 years. Because it was everything that New Line and Fine Line released. But that also means that's the era of Austin Powers, it's the era of Lord of the Rings, it's the era of Magnolia and all the stuff from late 90s to 2008. So, but I was very involved in the post-production side of Lord of the Rings, which I cannot believe was 20 years ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's nuts, it's nuts. But uh, traveled the world with some high, you know, high security footage and just weird experiences that I would have never been like, oh, that's gonna happen to me, you know, because of Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings was out of the box completely. 
and we had a great time, but it was a lot of work, you know. We did craziness, for sure. So that concluded in 2008, and, mm -hmm. and for those of us who uh, were adults back then, we remember that distinct time, but knowing your story, I also appreciate that the next few years were uh, pivotal <laughs> in, in multiple <laughs> senses. Yeah, I'd say so, years. yeah, yeah. I hope that you don't mind sharing part of that experience. What was that um, like? I, I left New Line in late 07, early 08, because I was a terrible person. I had become really, really bitter, really hard to live with. I mean, I'm working, watching every New Line film 50 to 100 times, and the storyteller in me is going, you could have fixed the whole back two-thirds if you would have changed this scene right here, and he would have just said, oh. You know, so I just was frustrated by that, and I was very angry as a creative person, and I would know I was hard to live with. My wife would tell you the same. Um, so I quit. I walked into my boss one day and I said, I'm going to give you a month notice because I've been here for almost a decade. He said, where are you going? And I said, I'm just going. I'm just, I'm out. And he was shocked. But he was a good guy and he stood by that, which was nice. Um, so I went full freelance and I directed a film and I, uh, sorry, I sold a script. I edited some films. I directed a couple things on the side. I uh, did just whatever I could find. That was late 2000, early 2008. Started a car show, <clears throat> shopped that in early 08, right as the economy took a dive. So all of our conversations were who are you guys? Where'd you come from? We really like this. Nobody's buying. Three or four of those conversations in a row. Um, so that started a totally different pathway for the show. But um, so then we had completely no money. unpredictable at the time, though, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I, I did. I, I built a show to be a TV show, and now I'm shopping, and nobody knows what the market's going to do, and nobody's going to buy anything. And for the first time in the history of film, random side note the film studios were taken down by an economic collapse because mm -hmm. prior to that economic collapse, the film studios had always been independent entities. By the time 2008 rolled around, they're all owned by Sony and whoever else. So all of those larger parent companies were taken down and pulled the film studios down with them. Because wow. traditionally, World War I and II are great examples. When the economy went down and situations were terrible, people went to the movies and the theaters did better. But in 08, everything got pulled down. So nobody was buying. Everybody was terrified. Um, nobody left L.A. because that's where all the work was. But everybody that had a full-time staff in L.A. laid off 30 to 40 percent of their staff. Everyone I knew that stayed at New Line, all of them were out of a job a year after I left because New Line got folded into Warner Brothers. So it was chaos. Um, and we realized we had enough money to survive 18 months or so in L.A. Uh, so we got pregnant. <laughs> excellent planning. Very good. Solves uh, all problems. Yeah, that's excellent. It's going to be really good, uh, especially as angry as I was. It was, it was great news. Um, so we got pregnant, um, and my son was born, and by uh, late 09, he was born in December of 09. By late 09, we knew we had till roughly July of 2010, and we had to be somewhere else. So I was shopping what I do for a living, which is mostly post-production. That's really my background, so editorial and that kind of stuff. I shopped it all over, but I realized we'd always wanted, my wife and I always wanted to live in a mountain town. So we did what I called the, the, the Colorado tour. We went all the way down I-70 and looked at all of the little mountain towns and found the one we liked and realized none of those were close to Denver, which, would, which could actually support my skill set. Mm. So I had come to Park City twice for work for a new line, doing stuff. I mean, side note, when when you're a filmmaker and you've struggled and you've fought to get your, I got my independent film done, and it's going to play at Sundance, and I'm awesome. And New Line Cinema, creator of Lord of the Rings, drops into opening night of Sundance and gets Eccles Theater because they made something vaguely indie. You've got to be mad about that. But we were the New Line guy walking in going, hi, we have this theater. 
But I'd worked here and I'd met some locals and I knew a little bit about the film industry here. And so I came out in May of 2010 and literally just cold called five or six different places that needed editors and found one down in Cosmic. They do a lot of local production. Found one down in, in Salt Lake that said, well, you know, maybe we need another editor. I mean, we kind of do, but we're not sure how consistent it is. And we were bleeding money in LA, so we had to get out either way. So our choices were move in with parents in our mid-30s with a six-month-old or give it a shot here for six months. So we moved out here and we moved like right over there uh, over in those condos. From yeah. The windows. yeah, exactly. And uh, we got a, we got a six-month lease. I mean, that was just like giving this a shot. So we came out July 4th of 2010 and we bought a house a year later because that became a solid job. And then the, on the side, the, the show started to get a little bit more traction. And then over time, I, st I was at Cosmic for a while, uh, so th the show was the side hustle. And then eventually, when we got our TV opp opportunity, I jumped out of that and went full time with what we do. So, but 08, no, 07 to 2011, dark, dark for sure. Except for moving to Park City, where it's like, this is where I live, which is crazy, you know. What, what was, please talk to me about, about that. Uh, for, as someone who uh, lived elsewhere in the world, Texas, came from California, you were one of those quote-unquote Californians moving to Park City. Yes. What was it like for you coming here? Did it feel like a tiny little town? I can't believe I live here. In the best way possible, mm. you know, because I was commuting around L.A. I mean, a lot of my job in L.A., I would drive to the office, but then I would leave the office regularly during the day and go to film labs and oversee stuff, and, and so I was in transit a lot. And already a car guy, I would always get there ahead of everybody else, and they nicknamed me the motivated commuter because I was there like 10 minutes for everybody else. I'm like, how did you not get through traffic? But it was constant traffic. And um, so to move here and to be in a place that was outdoors and to have this scenery and almost no traffic, and I would commute from here down I-80 to Salt Lake and would get to Salt Lake, people would be like, traffic was terrible this morning. I'm like, what are you talking about? I drove 25 minutes over a mountain pass. What, what are we talking, why are we complaining? You, are you kidding? You know, so um, it, it was total, total switch in that regard, and I loved it. and um, was amazed that I got to be able to do it. The big surprise for me, honestly, was the fact that I was still able to do cars here. Mm -hmm. Because LA is the car mecca. You know, we, we started a car show in LA, and I moved to Utah, I moved to Salt Lake, I wonder what earth is going to happen, you know. So I didn't know how, how likely we were going to be able to be able to grow our show. And for the first year or so, year or two I lived here, I would fly back to L.A. and we would shoot everything. And we shot nothing here. And now we shoot almost everything here. That's amazing. Yeah. So you're a really humble guy, so you're not going to like this question. But in, over this time, you've built, you've built an amazing brand. Please tell us a little bit about uh, how... The, the breadth of that brand, the, the different channels. Um, You're doing something really difficult with a very small group of people. Yeah, we, we do a lot. We, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a lot of me talking about cars. Um, the, the premise of what we did is called, it's called Everyday Driver, and it was called Everyday Driver from the beginning. Um, and the concept being that I had, I'd always owned terrible cars, hand-me-down cars, whatever, and it had really tamped down a lot of interest that I naturally had in cars. Um, and then I bought a Nissan 300ZX 1990 car I dreamed about as a high schooler when they first came out and couldn't afford one. Finally got one while working at New Line. It was an automatic, not a turbo. It was not the right version, but I had that car. And for the first time in my life, I would go drive for fun because I would commute, you know, all, all week. And then I started driving like 200 miles for the heck of it on a Sunday. 
just finding a squiggle outside of LA. It was, loved it, it was brilliant. And I started to look at commuting totally differently and being like, we spend so much time in our cars, we spend so much money on them, why are we hating what we drive? And I would go to car shows, and this literally happened to me. I watched a guy stand at the velvet rope of the Ferrari display and just go, oh, and slink off to you his minivan. Me? You saw me doing that. Sorry, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sorry, totally. I'm sorry. And he slinked off to his minivan, and I was like, look, there's, there's a middle ground here between you want the exotic, amazing car and what you drive every day. There's, we, can, we can bridge that gap. So that was the premise. Also, I discovered, and a lot of people that work in automotive would say this, I discovered the British reboot of Top Gear in the early 2000s. And I had watched Top Gear, and I had watched Motor Week, the longest-running car show in the U.S., which is essentially a boring wallpaper-paced brochure for a car. And Top Gear, which is cinema, but has no connection to reality whatsoever. And I was like, where's this? Where's the guy in the middle? And that's what we set out to be. That's awesome. Uh, and I had a, my only car buddy, my friend Paul, who now lives here too. He's my co-host and co-producer. Um, he has massive car knowledge, a huge car design background in both education and actual experience. So I was like, you're my car guy, friend, let's go. And he had never been on this side of a camera ever, never been on a set, nothing. I was like, this is gonna be a challenge. So we went and got the cameras I had and our cars and we shot a test piece that was mostly terrible. But the editor in me was like, okay, all right, I see what we need to fix. We've both got lots to fix, but let's start fixing stuff. So we started doing that. We built, we built a TV pilot, half hour TV pilot that I said before, shopped pretty well, except at the wrong time. So then we had this pilot and this idea and nowhere to put it, and this was right exactly at the time that YouTube decided we should monetize this and be more than just cat videos. So we put our stuff on YouTube, and we were approached by YouTube, this is how long ago this was, in 08 for the beta program of putting ads in front of content. So we signed on to that at late 08, early 09, um, and I didn't want to be on YouTube but it was the only outlet that we had, and I was still working to want to be a TV show. But between early 09, we got consistent on content, and four or five years later, we were just a YouTube show. Um, and we were, after I moved here, we had the grand idea, we're tiny, let's do all the Porsches in a film. Let's do, that'll be easy. Such a good film. Thank you. Such we did, we did 50 years of the 9-11 in 2013. That was the 50th anniversary. I was waiting for some huge brand to show up and have done it better than us. And nobody, including Porsche, did it. We did an 80-minute film. We drove every generation of the 9-11 back to back. And we sourced every single car from Park City except for one, which came from Salt Lake. And I, at this point, I was like, okay, apparently I'm not in a car dungeon. Cars are here, you know. Um, so we did that film, and that was a total, like, coming out party for a lot of people for us because they were like, who are these guys that pulled this off? Because nobody, not even Porsche did that, which shocks me to this day. And we were on a friend's podcast around that time and he said, you guys should do a podcast. And I said, about what? What on earth are we going to talk about on a podcast? But we started getting a lot of emails from people that were, help me find a car. We finally went, well, that's what our podcast is about. So to your question, long oh, answers from me. Oh, that was great. We have a YouTube channel that became two YouTube channels last year for various YouTube algorithm reasons. Um, we have a podcast, we do a TV show, and we try to do feature films as well. We've done five feature-length documentaries that are not YouTube content that are feature-length car-focused documentaries, um, which are massive undertakings, but I love them. 
We do uh, 12 TV episodes a year, six play in quarter one and six play in quarter three on Motor Trend Cable Channel because broadcast cable still exists. It's fascinating to me that that's true. But, um, so we have that audience. That audience doesn't even know we exist anywhere else. The, the cable audience, it's hysterical to me. So that audience watches there. Then it goes to Amazon Prime. A lot of people have found us on Prime, which is really cool. Those episodes work their way back to YouTube, but we also do unique content for YouTube on two different channels that have nothing to do with TV. We do two podcasts a week, which is, again, a lot of me talking about cars. Those are hour long each. Those come out on Tuesdays and Fridays, and we are almost episode 700, which is a lot. So when I get an email that somebody says, we found your podcast, I started at episode one, I just think, oh man, <laughs> I mean, thank you, but wow, that's a lot. So um, I spend an inordinate amount of time talking about cars. I love it. I love it, clearly, but uh, it's amazing to me that that's what I, I do for a living. And then we also try, because we have an audience all over the place now, to do either meetups or trips. We do a really cool Utah meetup where people come from all over the nation and we do some of the best driving roads in Utah for a couple of days. And then we do what we call our pilgrimage trip because if you're a car person, there are two meccas in Europe that you don't get to from the US. One is the Nürburgring and the other is Spa-Francorchamps, which is an F1 track. And we take people over there and we get them on those tracks because we started it with two idiots do a movie. Two idiot Americans went over and we just tried it. You know, we made a movie out of it. And when we released that movie in 2015, 2016, I think in the first 10 days of it being out, I had five independent conversations with people saying, you should, you should host that trip, I would go. I'm not a travel agent, but after the fourth or fifth conversation, I was like, apparently that's a thing. So we do it every year we can. Now we haven't gone for the last two years for obvious COVID reasons, but we do it every year we can. We take a handful of people over there and get them in cars. And it's not go see these tracks, it's go drive these tracks, which is really, really fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're, we're full this year actually. We just filled up this week. You so filled you filled yeah. in three or four days, Special right? Extra one. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, we, uh, I think uh, you and I were talking before, I think it's the, it's the COVID effect of people going, if I'm going to do something, I better do it now. Because years prior to this, we've taken six or seven. You know, and that's been great. It's a perfectly good trip. Uh, we capped this year's potential tickets just based on logistics. We'll cap it at 14. We won't get 14. We'll cap it at 14. We opened registration last week and we were full by Monday. So, okay, I guess we're going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out Eric, for sure. I know Eric and I are like thinking about I mean, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Todd, there's there's definitely the the passion side of this. You are doing storytelling mm -hmm. around the topic you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. But I also know how hard you work. Yeah. The amount of the amount of energy that you put in to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. has it detracted away from your passion or I mean, is it still your passion? Uh, this is a cool Friday, and I don't have uh, a major editorial deadline today, and so today it's today all it's good. Great it's all good today. Mm -hmm. There are days when it sucks. It's a job, you know. It's it's like I'm not going to sleep much, and that hasn't had color done, and I still have to approve that edit. And I, by the way, I have a wife and a 12-year-old son, you know, and that's a lot. And this, the next week, 10 days are going to be hard. Thankfully, my wife and son get it, and they're very supportive, but uh, we go through ebbs and flows. My two worst times of the year are December and June, because we start a TV season the first week of January and the first week of July. So those two months, I'm just head down. I'm editing all day, every day, and we're still shooting other stuff. We've got to shoot stuff to drive the channels. We've still got to do podcasts, but I'm, if I'm not doing that, I'm sitting at the editorial computer. 
And that's hard when everybody else kind of gets into that coast mode post-Thanksgiving. Everybody else is like, oh, is when I go deep, you know, and I get, you know, oh, look, it's Christmas Day. Okay, I won't work today. That's hard. That, that, there's no question that that's hard. Yeah. But I have to zoom out, and, and this is a challenge for me, but I have to zoom out and go, yeah, but you do this for a living. Are you kidding? This, I mean, this is actually my career. It's actually, I work for myself, and I do this, and I work for three or four people that I like. It's weird, but it's great. That's so cool. You know? With that, I'd love to see if you guys have questions. Sheesh. Uh, you mentioned the influence of Bob here. Mm -hmm. That means I watch your, your shows, and I see the chemistry. For some reason, it drags through it, but is it natural, or how, how does it? Paul and I, you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Um, it's, it's natural and then played up a bit. I mean, because we're, I mean, he lives here now. He moved here in 2015. Um, he lived in L.A. for longer than I did, and he got around age 40, and he went, I should make a change. And he looked all over the nation, bizarrely looked all over the nation, didn't look at Park City. And I said, buddy, you're my, you're my brother. We'll keep doing the show wherever you move. I get it, but I'm going to bring this up. Your skis are in my garage. Should you look at Park City? Hadn't even looked. So he looked at Park City, moved in in 2015, and... Uh, we were both very surprised at how much that helped the show. It's the first time when the show, we'd done a lot of stuff, we lived in the same city, because I moved here pretty much right after we started. Um, so we just got even further embedded. But, but he and I were already really good friends, and now we're, I mean, he's practically my second spouse, you know? So we see each other all the time. Um, so there is a natural rapport there, but, I mean, there's the flip side, and that is, you know, you work in proximity with somebody that much. There's days when it's harder than others. There's days when there's tension, and we got to deal with that because we still got to be on the podcast. We still got to be on camera. I know we've both had days when we're on camera being buddies, and we're not really great buddies right now, but we're brothers. I mean, that's the, really the best way to describe it. My son refers to him as Uncle Paul. So there's, you know, we're really fully embedded with each other, and so that's natural. But then if there are opportunities for us to play up disagreement, we do it a little bit because we generally kind of align naturally on cars on approach so if he thinks this car is amazing and i think it's eh then i'm going to play like it's a little bit awful you know i'm not going to go skew way off but i'm going to go well let me play to the fact that i'm not that impressed because it just helps you know great great question sheesh chris um so you, you talked about getting into writing when you're in junior high and i assume you were back in the states at that point yes where did you draw kind of your inspiration or ideas for whatever you wrote? Was it influenced by your time in England, or was it, you said how the pop culture? No, I, I, I take so your point. Far apart. Um, I'm a I'm a fiction storyteller, so stuff that really isn't my life at all is always the stuff that inspired me. You know, I mean, it's, most of my stuff reads like an action film, you know, and I'm not that guy, um, but. Uh, I just naturally wanted to write story, and the, the, the oddity of what I do now is what I do now is entirely narrative, and what I write is entirely fiction. So I've always been uh, just a fiction, action, adventure kind of person, and I always have some weird idea for a scene or a character or something like that, and would then just kind of embed myself in it and build a, a story around it that had no connection to my life. The whole write what you know adage has never been me, you know. <laughs> I, write, I write the... Um, I think the drama of the characters works on stuff that I've known and experienced, but the, the action is pie in the sky, you know? Chris, I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of, of his writing because uh, you did eventually write a book. 
I mean, yeah, I wrote a lot of screenplays. I wrote 20-something screenplays in L.A. and was kind of a factory for that, mm -hmm. um, with middling success at best. But when my, when I got, when my wife and I got pregnant, um, she really, really wanted to be a mom, and I said, okay, let's do this. So uh, there's a lot of that, you know, crushing in, and, uh, and I had an idea for a screenplay, mm -hmm. and uh, a father-son story that I wanted to write, and I got into it. 15, 20 pages and realized, this is a novel. Mm -hmm. I've never done a novel, but this is a novel. So I restarted as a novel and got probably 40 pages of novel, which is a little further on. And he was born, and I had grand designs that it was going to be done before he was seven or eight, which is the, the age of the boy in the novel. It was done when he was 10, because that's the exact same time that I'm building the car show, and that becomes you know reality and moving and all this kind of stuff. So it took me a decade of picking away at it. Um, and I released it the end of December of uh, 2020, and uh, I'm proud of it. I, I, I put it out to, to the world. I mean, it, I put it out on Amazon and didn't know what it was going to be because it had been the gestation process had been so long that I was like, at this point, I have no idea if it's any good. This has taken way too long, you know. I mean, because screenplays are just this thing you're firing out as fast as you can, and this was so so difficult for time. Um, so I put it out. It's like 420 pages. And uh, just figured, I'll put it out to the public, and we'll just see what people think of it, and we'll see if it's any good. And while it hasn't, you know, blown away anything on sales, it's sold to quite a few people. And the people that have found it, the response has exceeded any expectation I had. Please which tell is us the name great. of the book, because I'm sure many would be interested. Uh, it's called Paper Father. Um, it's a bit dystopian, but not because I like dystopian. It just worked for the storyline about a father fighting his way across a dystopian America to get to his son and doesn't know if he's going to make it. And so he's writing down all of the stuff he wishes as a father he could tell his son, knowing he may not ever get to share any of that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's vaguely Mad Max, but that's not really the point. Um, and uh, I didn't know what people were going to think. At that point I was like, thank God it's done. I like it, but I have no idea. You know, and and the response has has kind of blown me away. To be awesome. honest, really cool, really fun. So one yeah. quick comment on that actually for the book. Sorry, uh, is it seems like it was influenced by some of those dark years of relationships Absolutely. And, and whatnot. So I just I just wanted to comment on that that it was there were some really great observations about father son relationships, parent child, and. Um, you say this as if you've read it. I have. Yes. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Cool. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no problem. But what, what I thought was cool was, you know, you're very transparent about reflecting on, you know, being really heads down and the difficulty of maintaining relationships and yeah. things like that. And I think it came through really well in this. Cool. Book, so. Thank you. Anyway. I, I, I'm flattered. Thank you very much. So why Waco, Texas for school and not New York or LA? Um, excellent. Uh, I think because I wasn't as clear on what I should get for a degree. I think if I had known when I graduated high school, I should go to film school, I might have decided differently. I wanted to tell stories. I, do I want to be, I'm literally, this is my headspace, do I want to be a radio DJ? Maybe. Do I, do I want to write? Maybe. Do I want to make films? Maybe. Baylor was close. You know, my parents are, are very conservative Christians, and Baylor's a, a Baptist university. So, I mean, all of those pieces seem to make some level of sense. So it's like, all right, I'll just go that far. Um, and then I actually applied to some film schools for graduate school and um, nearly went to a couple and then I realized I should just go to LA if I'm going to go to LA. So I didn't go to th that. But I think if I had been clear enough on filmmaker only, 
Because it's the other thing about it. I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I mean, I was this scattered 17-year-old. Literally, I was the youngest people in my class, so I, I went to college in the first, first couple of months. I was 17. You know, so I had these ideas of kind of who I was, but where I was going to end up, no idea. I think if I had been clearer, I would have made a very different choice. Question? Been you have any interns? Or, or <laughs> <laughs> my daughter was a driving intern? Yeah, seriously. No, like Eric? <laughs> so you talked a little bit about, uh, well actually you asked about the passion versus work. So I want to ask a car question Okay. see if the passion's there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in LA, your favorite twisty road, say for Carrera 4S, or, and then here, what's your favorite twisty road here? Um, LA, if you're ever out in LA, uh, you get up, um, Angeles Crest Highway 2 is phenomenal. Highway 1 is the coast. Highway 2 is the mountains. Highway 1 is great only if you get north of San, uh, Santa Barbara. You've got to get north. Or, or you go off of there in like Mulholland and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that kind of stuff. L.A. is littered with great roads. Um, I think our roads here are as good or better, but they're just weather dependent, which is the problem. The best road in Southern California, though, is Highway 33 out of Ojai. Go to Ojai and go up. And it is every five miles. It's a different kind of road, which is brilliant. We've shot there. We've shot so many pieces there, and they all look different. But here, Wolf Creek Pass is the same thing. Go up Wolf Creek Pass. It's 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 not as long as Highway 33, but we've used it on pretty much every year. We use it a couple times. It has a similar feel where it's got some tight sections and got some some grand sections in the terrain changes. And so, Highway 33 is great. 150 is good, but 150 gets too much traffic. Until I shoot for a living. Um, and then uh, you, if you want to kill it and you've got time, you do Highway 12 south of Torrey in central Utah. And go from Highway 12 from Torrey to Escalante. Spectacular. Un unbelievable road. Yeah. And when we do our. Yeah. When we do our big Utah meetup, we, do, we go through all of those and people are just jaw dropped by it. It's really fun. Before we leave this topic and go to Sheesh for another question, there was a road you taught us about a year ago. Uh, I can't remember. It was in Colorado, best road in the U.S. Oh, 550. Like 550. Yeah. Million dollar highway. Million dollar highway. South of, south of Ure. Ure to okay. Durango is every bit as good as Highway 12, but very different. Okay. And, and it's, the road, it's the road that, like, I, I have rock climbing in my past, and so heights don't really bother me. Heights terrify my co-host, Paul. And 550 is one of those roads where it's mountain, road, mountain, and no guardrail. So we're driving along. I'm going, this is awesome. We're driving along. Paul's going, I'm going to get into this lane because that's really terrifying. So, but it's, it's spectacular. That road's amazing. Sheesh, did you have another question? Like, what's no. the best road you've ever driven? Like, I mean, you know, 550's up there. But, you know, Wolf Creek 12, we just did a huge road trip uh, from San Francisco to Seattle. We did it for a big, for TV and for YouTube. We went that thousand mile route on the coast, which was amazing in its own way. You know, I mean, there's, there's lots of great stuff. Yeah. Christy, you had a question? We uh, have staunchly avoided being sponsored by any automaker for obvious reasons because, well, of course you like Honda because brought to you by. Uh, we, luckily, we get cars from press fleets. So anytime you see a bunch of car magazines in uh, an airport and you notice they all have the same car on the cover, that's because every one of those magazines drove that car two months ago. We're in that press fleet rotation. So there is a, a press fleet in Denver 
and they feed us one to two cars a week out of two different press fleets. They have now, we didn't when we moved here, but now there's four or five outlets. We're one of them in the Salt Lake area. So they'll drive a car out and rotate it through those five outlets over five weeks and then drive it back. So there's a guy that's out here every week getting us cars. So that's how we get stuff to feed the beast that is YouTube. And then for TV stuff, we will travel to where the cars are. We'll actually design matchups and go, we want to put this car with this car. Where are those cars? Can they come here? Do we need to go to LA? We have good relationships. Paul manages those very well. We have good relationships with the manufacturers, and so we call them, and they know who we are, and we say we need this car in this approximate date range, and we'll marry them up and figure out where that means we need to be. And so the, the TV approach is different than the kind of YouTube grind approach, but we're always driving something that we don't own. It is the craziest rental car program on the planet. They show up, they give you the keys and a full tank of gas. They'll be here in a week, and it needs to be shiny side up and have enough gas to get to a gas station. That's craziness, and we do it every week, so yeah. Or, or if you have an ex if you have what? an exciting car, Christy, they will also ask you for it. So we do that as well. Of all yes. the exciting yes. cars I owned and on I owned, they asked for the minivan. And I thought he was kidding. Like, there's no way you're asking for the minivan. And then he compares it to my Lotus. Yeah. We had a discussion. That the piece was called the Spectrum of Sacrifice, and it was where are you on the Spectrum of Sacrifice? Because the Lotus is brilliant to drive, but does almost nothing else well, and the minivan does everything else well and is terrible to drive. Where are you on the Spectrum of Sacrifice? It was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah. Say it again. Uh, dinged a couple. We've never actually wrecked one. We have dinged a couple. Um, and we have heard horror stories of people that have wrecked them, like, balled it up, it's off that cliff turn. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that's never happened to us. We are established enough now that should that happen, I don't think it would tank us as far as the, those relationships to get another car. Uh, the manufacturer's policy, because we've heard about it a lot of times, is literally just, are you okay? And then where do we pick up the scrap metal? Um, but we try to be very, very careful with the press cars because that's a, the, the press fleets is a really, really small world, and they all talk. And so we have a pretty good relationship, so we try to be pretty careful. But stuff happens, you know. You had a really close call with the Corvette film. I did. Which... I had a really bad time with the Corvette film. That was a tough week, yeah. Um, we shot, like the 50 Years of 9-11, we did American Original, which was every generation of the Corvette. And so we drove all the generations. The oldest car was a 1954. It was made like six months after the car was introduced. That, that car was in Ogden. It's been there its whole life. Craziness. So we drove all the Corvettes. And I was in a, uh, that was one of the hardest shoot weeks of my life. Because if it was going to go wrong, it was happening to me. I don't know why, but it was terrible. So I nearly ran into deer a couple times. I had a car uh, engine fail on me in the middle of my interview. I, I just, stuff kept happening. But the one you're referring to was a 1963 Corvette split window. That is a one-year-only car. It is worth a lot of money. And I was driving it on uh, Big Cottonwood. And um, I'm coming around a corner. This is a car with uh, drum brakes and a nervous owner. And I'm coming around a corner. And as I'm coming around this way, there, there are four or five high school-age girls in a Mazda CX-5, and they decide they want to park here. And they don't look. And they just turned in front of me. And we've got it on camera. And we put it in the film because it is a horrifying close call. And so I slam on the brakes, the drum brakes, which are not that good. And I try to turn the car away from them as they're coming across my lane. We have it from 
the behind me camera angle and we have it from the drone accidentally. And I'm guessing it was inches. They barely cleared. And you know that thing when you get in a car wreck and everything slows down? I watched all the passengers in the CX-5 go. <laughs> as I'm careening past them, barely, barely missed and came to a stop. And I sat there, and there was a woman, because there was a parking lot for a hike on this side that was full. So they were looking at that, and then they turned across me, right? And there was a woman in that parking lot standing there. And she goes, okay. <laughs> and, I, and I had just finished a massive cussing streak on camera. Uh, and I get on radio. A us could be, hey, guys, I, I'm going to need a minute. Uh, <laughs> and then I got to go do an interview. I just, I was like a mile into my interview. So I had to go like, okay, I gotta be, be happy, talk about the car, let's go, you know. And it's, it was one of those things where when it happened, I thought, that felt close, but it probably wasn't that bad. And I got into post and went, no, no, that was worse. That was really, really close. As, as you were describing driving Cottonwood and someone coming the other way, I guarantee you half of this crew thought it was Mike on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scary close. That is by far the closest call and that, yeah, thank God it didn't, we didn't hit, yeah. Todd, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Clearly, it's hard for me to talk. So stressful it's for you. It's really, it's the it's anxiety. A, it's a burden. Just, yeah. You don't do this very often, but thank you so much for your <laughs> time. Pleasure. Thank you.